Well, welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel. We're so glad that you're here with us today to worship, and uh, we're excited, as Chris has already mentioned, and Nathaniel has mentioned as well, this is our new ministry year kickoff, and so uh, can't wait to jump into this year. We got a whole new theme uh, for the year called Taking New Ground, and we're going to talk more about what that means and what that looks like in several different areas and facets of what that's going to be, and, um, but for right now, we want to dig into, if we got a new ministry year, we also need a new sermon series. So we're going to jump into a new book of the Bible today. We're going to walk through this fall, the book of Nehemiah. So if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and flip with me to Nehemiah. Uh, if you need help finding that, go to the middle of your Bible. You'll probably be in Psalms. Go back to the left a couple books, and you'll find the book of Nehemiah. Um, Old Testament, really, really impactful book. I've studied this in, um, several times throughout my Christian walk, and um, really excited to do this with you now. If you're a guest with us today, um, again, let me just say thank you for coming. We're so glad that you're here. If we can help you or serve you in any way, please let us know. We would love to do that. For those of you worshiping with us online, same thing. If you need anything, uh, put it in the register. Put it in the comments there on Facebook. We would love to help and serve you also. So as I was kind of getting ready this week, I was thinking about this guy, um, one of the great heroes of our faith, I think, and especially like in early American Christianity, uh, is the evangelist and revivalist D.L. Moody. Um, I'm so, if you've been around church, you've probably heard of him before. You've probably heard his name, his books, his quotes. Um, he really had a remarkable life and ministry, despite the fact that he had several different struggles and issues and inadequacies in and of himself. They don't always get as much airtime, but let me kind of read you some things. Uh, it says, he dropped out of school when he was 13 years old, but went on to inspire students at Cambridge University in England and um, started an internationally recognized church and school here in the United States. He once preferred teaching only children because he was uncomfortable with adults due to his lack of education. But by the end of his career, he ended up being one of the most persuasive orators of his day. He was born on a remote farm in rural Massachusetts, but went on, to be, went on to be famous for conquering whole cities for Christ, both in the United States and in Europe. Early on in his life, he was in love with money. He was all about making as much as he could. But as he got into ministry, he ended up changing his priorities to live in simple conditions so that more money could be used to spread the gospel. And so when I think about guys like D.L. Moody, like, how does one man experienced so many big moves of God in his life, right? Like, if this was spread out across, you know, a bunch of different people, that would be one thing, but like, when you see one guy that over and over and over again, God uses him in magnificent ways, huge ways, to preach the gospel, to reach people, like, how does that happen? Well, Moody, if you've ever heard, um, if you've ever, you know, read anything in his biography or maybe seen the movie of his life, he was once in Europe, on a preaching crusade, and he was talking with an evangelist named Henry Varley. And Henry Varley said this to him. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally yielded to him. And Moody was captivated by that sentence. And in that moment, he had a little conversation in his heart between him and the Holy Spirit, and he said, by God's grace... I will be that man. And I think we see the same path, we see the same heart 
in all the people that God uses in big ways. In the Bible, in church history, all the ones that God uses in big, massive ways for his kingdom have this mentality. That I want to have a heart, I want to have a life that is completely yielded to God. Now, I'm not saying we're all going to be a D.L. Moody's, okay? Let's just kind of set the, set the correct expectations here. But what could God do in our lives? What could God do in our church, in our city, if each one of us would resolve to be fully yielded to the hand of God in our lives? If we really want to see God take new ground this year in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our community, it's going to have to start with us getting desperate for God to move and for us to yield our lives to him. And we're going to see what that looks like through Nehemiah here in the first chapter of his book. But here's kind of the big idea I want to draw out for you this morning. God's next big move in my life starts at the end of myself. God's next big move in my life, in your life, starts when we finally get to the end of who we think we are and who we think we want to be, and we completely yield ourselves to him and to his plan and to his word. So let's look at how Nehemiah does this. Let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. And it starts like this. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So the first thing, if we want to see God make big moves in our lives, the first thing is here, you have to walk the path of desperation. Point number one, we have to walk the path of desperation. Let me show you that here. But before I, I jump into Nehemiah and how he does that, let me kind of give you some background for him and for the book. Right? We're starting a whole new book here. We kind of need to know what we're doing. So Nehemiah here is the primary player in the book. Obviously, that's why it's named after him. It's his personal, for the majority of the book, is his personal story. A lot of th- theologians think that it's actually um, his personal memoirs. Like this was him writing what God had done in his life, and it ended up becoming uh, a book in the Bible as it was edited in. And uh, we learned through this book that he was an exceptional leader, right? He was, a, he was a great organizer. He was a great planner. He was a great worker for the Lord. But most of all, what I see when I read the book of Nehemiah is that he was a closer, right? Like, like he got things done, and he got them done now. Like he was after it all the time. And so that's kind of who Nehemiah is. As we, that's important for you to know as we kind of step into this first chapter. But then the historical setting for the book right? Because the whole Old Testament is the story about God's family, the nation of Israel, right? And how they're following him and what's happening to them. Well, here it says that it starts off the book in the month of Chislev. So for us today, that would be like late November, early December, 
okay? That's kind of the time frame that we're talking about here. In the 20th year, now, Nehemiah doesn't tell us exactly the 20th year of what. We find out later on in the book, in chapter 2, that it's actually the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia, the Persian Empire. So how do we, how do we get from nation of Israel to Persia, right? So let me kind of give you a quick catch-up Old Testament you know, run down here in two minutes to get us back to Nehemiah. So way back with Abraham, God chooses Abraham and he creates for himself a family, a nation, the nation of Israel that are going to be his chosen people. But they find out and they end up finding themselves in slavery in Egypt. And so God goes and he rescues them out of slavery to bring them to what he calls the promised land the place where he was going to set them and make them prosperous, and he was going to commune with them in this sacred land called the Promised Land uh, in the land of Judah. And so he sets them up there. They have years of great prosperity and peace and strength, and they're doing awesome. And then pretty soon the kings of Israel and the people of Israel start to drift. They start to get their eyes off of the Lord. They start worshiping other gods They start worshiping other things in their life rather than worshiping the God who rescued them and gave them this great land. And God warns them, if you don't return to me, if you don't repent of your sin and return to me, I'm going to have to punish you. But they fail to do so. They keep on with their sin. They keep on the path they're on. And so God allows other empires, other countries, if you will, to come in and conquer them and take them into what the Bible calls exile. First it was Assyria, then it was Babylon, but regardless, they come in, they conquer the Jewish people, and they take them off into other lands. They take them away, this is the important part, they take them away from the promised land, away from God's presence, away away from the place of their faith, and they end up in exile, and eventually Babylon gets conquered by the empire of Persia, hence, we're in Persia, okay? So that's real quick Old Testament to get you to Nehemiah. And so now we find here that Nehemiah and most of the Jews are still in exile in Persia, but some of the Jews have already returned to Jerusalem. That's what Nehemiah asks about here. There was a group that 13 years prior to this book went back to Jerusalem intent on rebuilding the temple of God in Jerusalem. And they did that. However... While they're there, they also start to try to rebuild the city and the walls, and they don't, aren't able to do that. We're going to find out why in a second. And so Nehemiah is asking these guys who have just come back, like, how are they doing? What's going on back in Jerusalem? And that's kind of the setting here in this 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And he also says, I'm in Susa, the citadel, which was basically the city of Persia that had the winter palace for the king. All right? Kings back then, they didn't just have one palace. They had a palace for each season. And so the one that they wintered in was in Susa. So we find out that right now Nehemiah is in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. He's in Susa, in Persia, and that's the setting for the book as it starts off. So Hanani, his brother, we don't know if it's actually his actual like brother-brother or just a kinsman of his, but somebody in his family comes back from Jerusalem, from the land of Judah, and he asks him, how is it going? Right? He asks him for a report. This is a, a trusted source that he knows personally. And he's been there. He's seen it firsthand, how the work is going in Jerusalem. And he wants an account. He says, how are the Jews that escaped, the Jews who left exile and went back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land, how are they doing? 
this remnant that returned underneath Zerubbabel and Ezra 13 years ago, how are they doing? But the report's not what he was hoping for. Hananiah's report says that they are in great trouble, that they're in great shame, specifically because the wall is broken down. Now, the whole wall is broken down thing might seem like a construction problem to us, but it doesn't really like hit home for what it's really about. But in this time period, each city was kind of its own standalone entity in terms of defense. And so if you didn't have a wall, you were messed up, right? Like this was their police force. This was their army. This is what protected them from outside attack and looting and abuse and, and instability. Like if your city didn't have a wall, you were in major problems. Also, it was a great dishonor to the city. How great of a God can you have if you can't even build some walls around your city, right? So this was a major, major deal. And it shocks Nehemiah. Like, he's like, what? What? No walls? They've been there 13 years. How have they not rebuilt the walls yet? What, What is going on? And for the first time, Nehemiah becomes aware that there's a problem. You see, up to this point, he'd been so wrapped up in just his normal day-to-day life, hanging out in Susa, doing his thing, that he was completely unaware that there was this major problem with his people, with his faith, with his, his, the land of his God. He just didn't know. He was ignorant to what was going on. But not anymore. Now Nehemiah sees the need. That's step one in the path of desperation. You can't get desperate for God to move until step one, you see the need. It starts with us opening our eyes and seeing something in our lives, something in our community, something in our church that needs the Lord's intervention. So Nehemiah sees the need. He, He understands it now with his mind. And it says he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. This reality hit Nehemiah hard. It broke his spirit before the Lord. These were his people. This was his faith, his God. And now, you know how it is when you finally finally see the problem clearly? You can't unsee it anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Like Nehemiah, now that he sees it, he's like, I can't get this out of my head. But how Nehemiah responds to this problem is so important. It's so instructive for us. He doesn't ignore it, right? He's not, he doesn't just bury his head in the sand and go back to his normal day-to-day life and just, you know, status quo. He, he doesn't remove himself from it, you know, but well, that's, that's hundreds and hundreds of miles away. That doesn't concern me. That's their problem. It's not my problem. No, he doesn't do that. The Bible tells us that he sat in it. He mourned it. Nehemiah was broken over the need because he knew God was broken over the need. And so step one is to see the need. Step two is to feel the need. It's one thing to see it and know that it exists. It's a whole other thing for our hearts to then resonate with the heart of God and say, no, this is something that has to happen, something that has to be done about this. 
So first we have to see the need, then we have to feel the need. Our heart has to catch up to our mind. And then look at what he does next. At this point, there's still one more step to go because he's, right now he's despairing over the problem, but he's not yet desperate over the problem. Next it says, I continued fasting and praying. Once Nehemiah heard the news and saw the problem, he knew that only God could fix this. This was not something that he could handle. No matter how good of a leader he was, no matter how much ability and strength, this is not within his wheelhouse. He and the Jews in Jerusalem, they needed God's help. And so Nehemiah, this this man of action, right, this get-it-done-now kind of guy, this closer guy, he doesn't spring into action and go run to the problem. No, he stops, and he sits, and he prays, and he fasts. And we're going to find out that he prays and he fasts for four months over this problem. This starts in the month of Chislev, Next week in chapter 2, we're going to find out the next move he makes is in the month of Nisan, which would have been like late March, early April. So for four months, he waits on the Lord. He fasts. He prays. He doesn't move without God. He waits until God shows up. He confesses the need with desperation for God to come and do what only God can do. That's step number three confess the need. First we have to see it, then we have to feel it, then we have to go to the Lord in prayer and confess, Lord, we need you. We need you to show up. We need your help. We are desperate for you. Despair leads to paralysis, but desperation for God leads to patience. It leads to waiting on the Lord. Nehemiah is not stuck here. He's not waiting for four months because he doesn't, because he, he's, he's paralyzed in fear. No, he's patiently waiting as he prays and fasts, and he is desperate for God to move. I've seen God walk me down this path of desperation many times throughout my life, um, but I'll share just one recent example from our family. Probably about a year, year and a half ago, um, I had a major wall broken down in my life and specifically in my parenting. Um, you know, at this point, the church had launched. It was growing. It was moving. It was, there was a lot going on, but we were still this young church, and so there was a lot of juggling, and, and, and I didn't realize how much stress that was putting on my shoulders at times. And I was working these super long days, and I was tired, and I was exhausted by the time I got home, and I, I kept getting really short with our girls, I would get angry, I would yell, I would, I would lose my cool with them, and uh, I didn't see it at first. It happened so gradually, I didn't see it, and, and, and a couple different times, Courtney would, would try to point it out to me, I'm like, oh, she's just being oversensitive, it's, it's not that bad, and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I lose my cool sometimes, but parents, that's all of us, we're like, that just happens, so I'm, it's not a big deal, that's all parents, and, and they're, not, they're not obeying, and so they kind of deserve it, and so like, I'm just, I've got all this going on in my head, and I'm like, I, I, don't, I didn't really think it was an issue. Until one night. One night they were taking too long to get ready for bed, as usual, and I just completely lost it. And I was screaming and yelling and just blew up like they just stole the car or something. Like, it was ridiculous. 
And in that moment, I saw it. I saw fear in the eyes of my little girl. They, they weren't just submitting to daddy anymore. They were scared of daddy. And in that moment, God showed me my need. He showed me the need in them. But that, that wasn't parenting. And so in the moment that I saw this, I, I, I started to realize what they, what they need even more than they need to be taught respect and obedience is they need safety. They need to know that daddy's here to love and help them. And sure, they need to learn right and wrong, but they don't need to walk around on eggshells scared that I'm going to blow up every time. And so that night I went to bed and the next morning I got up and I was reading my Bible and I was praying, had my quiet time with the Lord, and God just took me to the mat on this thing. I, now I had see, I'd seen it, I couldn't unsee it anymore. And now God was making me feel it. And he was showing me that my heart was broken. Some walls were broken down in my heart that needed to be repaired. And that I needed to be patient with them like God is patient with me when I continue to mess up. And that they needed love and support, not just fear and trembling from their dad. And so God started working on me that morning, and, and so I, I saw the need, and then I felt the need, and then in prayer I just turned to the Lord, and I was desperate that, God, you got to fix this. This isn't something that I can do. This isn't something within my grasp to fix. And so I started praying, and, and the Lord showed me some scripture that I could start memorizing and start praying through that scripture, start changing my heart. He, um, I, he gave me the strength to go back and apologize to Courtney and to our girls and ask them to forgive me and to repent of that. Parents, you need to do that sometimes. This is just a sidebar. This is for free this morning. Your, parent, your, your kids need to see you repent of sin too. They need to see you confess as well. So I did that with them, and then that week I took it to the guys in our small group. And God had already built into my life this great group of guys who loved me and would encourage me and strengthen me and they, they gave me scripture and they prayed for me and they were checking on me. Man, if you're not in a small group yet, get in a small group already. Right? This is what we do. We're kicking off all new groups again or kicking off new season for groups this week. You need men and women in your lives who God can use to, to, to spur you on and to encourage you when you fall. I saw the need, I felt the need, and I confessed the need to the Lord and to other believers in my life who could help me walk through this because I was desperate for God to change something that couldn't continue like it was. And in my desperation, God came running to help. That's all he's looking for. It's for us to get to the end of ourselves and stop thinking that we can do it on our own and we can handle it on our own and just cry out to God and say, God, you've got to do this. So what is that for you right now? What walls are broken down in your life right now? Maybe it's a recurring sin issue like what I just shared with you. Maybe, it was, maybe it's not anger for you. Maybe it's 
materialism or gossip or deception or lust or whatever else you can put on that list. But what is it in your life that you're, it just continues to plague you over and over and over again and you just can't seem to, to get past it? You need to cry out to God and let him work in the way that you can. Maybe it's a broken relationship for you. Maybe things with your spouse just aren't good right now. Maybe things with your kids or your neighbor or your boss or your coworkers. And you need God to help you go and to reconcile and to repair those relationships. Maybe it's just looking around you and seeing all the people all over our world and our community who desperately need Jesus. And you see that the walls in their lives are in ruins. And they're not going to be repaired until they meet the Savior. And God is growing your heart with a growing burden to reach out and share Jesus with the lost people in your life. Maybe you've just learned over the last couple months, you've, God's brought it clear to you that you've got some misplaced priorities. Maybe it's been the last couple of months, maybe it's been over the last couple of years, but you've got some things out of whack, and you've got some things in your life that you're making a higher priority than you are God. And that wall needs to be repaired in your life. I don't know what it is for you, but I can almost guarantee that all of us have something. Maybe you're here today and you've got the very first wall that needs to be repaired. Maybe you've never actually come to put your faith in Jesus Christ to start with. And you're still stuck in your sinful heart, in your sinful life, and you know that this is not going well. That you, you are in rebellion against God and that you desperately need to be rescued because right now you're on a path straight to hell. And the only way out of that is not anything that we do, but only what God can do. That's why God sent his son Jesus to come and to rescue us from our sin. He came and lived a perfect, sinless human life on this earth. We just sang about it. And then he went to the cross and he died a sinner's death. He died for your sin. He died for my sin. He took the guilt and the punishment that we deserved and he died in our place and he went into the grave and three days later he rose back to life to show us that he was God. To show us that there was a way to be saved. That if we would come to him desperate and crying out, Lord, save me, that he would wash away our sin and he would give us a new heart and a new life in him. Maybe that's the wall that's broken down for you today. You still need to experience that first step of desperation where God gives you a new life and a new heart. If that's you, just cry out to him today. Just ask him to move, and he will. So what wall is broken down in your life right now? And then here's the second question. Have you desperately confessed your need to God? Whatever it is. Whatever it is for you. Have you got on your knees before the Lord and said, God, I can't do this anymore. I desperately need you to move. That's where it starts. We have to walk this path of desperation. But Nehemiah doesn't stop there. He goes on to pray this great prayer starting in verse 5. Let's look at his prayer now. 
Verse 5, he says, And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have uh, acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though our, your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayers of, prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So the first thing is to walk the path of desperation, but then the second thing is we have to pray the prayer of desperation. Pray the prayer of desperation. I'm going to show you four parts to meet Nehemiah's prayer here that make up a prayer of desperation. They actually make up the word pray, as convenient as that is. And so we're going to start with the P. P stands for position. The first thing Nehemiah does is he makes clear the position of God and the position of him, right? He says, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God. Desperation always starts with acknowledging that God is God and I am not. And getting humble before him. He says, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So he's not just an awesome and powerful God. He's also a faithful God who never fails us. He always keeps his promises. He always keeps his covenants. We can always trust him. He says, God who is awesome and faithful, hear your, what word does he say? Servant. God, servant. Those are the positions that we have to have if we're going to be desperate for God to move. Desperate prayer starts with the right positions. So he gets the positions, and then he goes to the second part, which is R for repent. He says, I'm here, I'm confessing the sins of Israel. I'm confessing for myself and for my father's house. In order, in order for us to receive help from God, we first have to come clean with God. God cannot help you until you lay it all out there. And you confess your sin and you confess your need. Both, we need to do this both collectively as a church, but also personally as individuals. And I want you to notice as we go through here the honesty and the transparency and the vulnerability of Nehemiah as he's praying this prayer, right? He's not just pointing to the sins of others. He's just like, oh yeah, all those, all those wicked people over there, God, you need to forgive them. No, no, no. He's like, no, no, them and me <laughs> and my father's house and, and Lord, it's, it's, it's me. I'm owning my stuff. That's what we got to do if we're going to be desperate for God. 
I think today in our world, we feel like we have to hide our mistakes. We have to hide our sins. We can't let anybody know, because if it gets out there and people know, they're going to attack us, and they're going to shame us, and they're going to they're going to cancel us, right? Like the whole cancel culture right now, right? This whole idea is, is going. And so we, we, have to, we have to hide all of our problems. We, we have to pretend that we have it all together and we got this under control and we don't need any help. And behind the scenes, we're trying to handle all this stuff that we can't handle on our own. And it never works. It never works because here's the truth, friends. We can't fix us. We just can't. Only God can do that. So we have to come and confess and repent. Even as leaders. And we have different levels of leadership in our church. Pastors, elders, small group leaders, ministry leaders, kids leaders, youth leaders. Even as leaders. Confession doesn't make us weaker or less effective, confession makes us stronger and more effective because now God is with us doing through us what we could never do by ourselves. So we have to position ourselves correctly with God, then we have to repent. Nehemiah goes on, he says, we have acted corruptly and not kept your commandments and statutes and rules. Nehemiah, he's not giving some generic, yeah, sorry God, all right, time to move on. All right, it's not some abstract you don't really know what he's praying about. No, he's getting very specific. God, this is what we've done. And he's repenting of those things. Now, let me clarify here for just a second because sometimes Christians get confused between confession and repentance. It's a very important distinction that we need to have. All right? He's actually here starting with confession. Confession is agreeing with God. All right? It's agreeing with God. It's admitting, yes, I sinned. That's confession. Okay? And we need to do that. That's the first step. But if we stop with confession, then nothing in our lives will truly change. Because the next step past confession, repentance, is saying, yes, I did it, and then turning away from that sin and turning towards God and following him instead of the sinful desires of my heart. That's repentance. That actually hasn't come yet, but it's coming as he goes deeper into his prayer here. All right? And so we, we need to confess and repent. And then the A, the third part of his prayer, is appeal. He appeals to God and he appeals to his word. He says, God, remember your word. And he points back to a promise that God gave to the nation of Israel and to Moses, one of the leaders, years and years before. God promised them, he said, if you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you across all the world. Done. <laughs> like Nehemiah's like, yep, that happened. It came true. God kept his promise. We're scattered. We're in exile. But then he goes on. There was a second part to the promise. He said, if we're unfaithful, I'll scatter you. But if you'll return to me, if you'll repent and come back, then I will gather you back again to my presence. Nehemiah's saying, do that, God. Keep your promise of restoration as we turn, as we repent to you. He tells them, he says, this is your people. 
the ones that you have redeemed with your hand. You took them out of Egypt. You gave them the land. You have done all of this, Lord. You always keep your promises. You always keep your covenant. Do it again. Do it again today. Be faithful to us again. You are our only hope. He's appealing to God and to his word because the word of God is the bedrock of our hope in desperate times. If we don't have this, if we can't appeal to this, we don't have anything. So we position ourselves, we repent, we appeal to God and to his word, and then lastly, why yield? Yield. He goes on and he prays. He says, Lord, remember those who fear your name. Fear in the Old Testament is this idea of reverence. It's this idea of coming before the Lord with awe and humility and respect because he is God and we are not. He says, remember your servants, Lord, who fear your name. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is to know and to do what God says. So this is his repentance. Lord, we fear your name. We are, we're following you. We're all about you and your word. We're in. Please help us. Give success and mercy to your servant. I can't do this myself. I can't do it in my power. I yield to you, God. I yield to your power. You give me success. You give me mercy. Specifically, he says, give me success and mercy with this man. Okay, there's like an English rule or something, right? Like you're not supposed to like use that, like one of the, what's that word called? Pronoun? Is that a pronoun? Yes. And before you like name the person, right? Isn't that like a thing? Who's the man? Like where's the, who's the, what man is he talking about? We don't find out until chapter two. He's talking about King Artaxerxes. He's saying, listen. I need your help. I need your success with this man, the king, who has all power, all control. He says, this guy, he's the king, but he's just a man compared to you, God. I'm not yielding to him anymore. I'm yielding to you. He gets desperate for God to move. Last week, um, I wasn't preaching last week. Nathaniel did a great job. We appreciate him stepping in. Amen. And, um, and so, my, because our family was on vacation, we got to go away for a week and have a little bit of a beach vacation and just kind of recharge ourselves before we jumped into the new ministry year. And uh, so we went to the beach, and this was the first time that we went to the beach as a family. This first time our girls got to see the ocean. And so we were walking out, man, and they were just in, they were just in awe, and they were squealing and excited, and they immediately wanted to get in the water and play. And, but there was a problem. It's the ocean. It's not a lake, it's not a pool, so there's waves, right? And so they're trying to get out of there, and they just kind of keep getting pushed back and knocked down because these waves keep hitting them, and they're just not quite big enough and strong enough to, to and so I'm like, girls, we got to get, get past the crest of the waves, like, you got to get out a little bit further so you can kind of float on the waves before they get in here and get, get to where they knock you down, and so, so we're trying to get out there and get into the waves where we can enjoy them a little bit more, and, and uh, but, but Ava, our youngest, she just wasn't quite big and strong enough to get, to, to get past the waves, right? Like, she didn't quite have the courage or the strength to make it. And so she said, she said, Daddy, will you, will you take me out there? Will you pick me up and carry me? But you, but you can't let go. Like, that was the rule. Like, you, you can't, you got to hold me the whole time. And I said, okay, that's fine. And so I scooped her up, and we waded out into the waves, and we 
floated and we enjoyed the water. And... But the waves, they were just too big for her. She didn't have the power, she didn't have the ability, the strength to do it on her own. She needed daddy's power to help her make it through the waves. The same thing is true for us and God. You constantly have waves that are beating against your life, and you don't have the power to stand against them. You need the Father's power to pick you up and to walk you through the waves. And with his strength and his power, you can make it. You can do it. Big things can change, but it comes at his hands. I only find success, the success of the Lord, through the power of the Lord. This is what it means to pray a desperate prayer. It's coming to the point where I understand, I can't do this. I need you to do it only through your power, God. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is this, am I yielding to the position and power of God? Whatever that wave is in your life, whatever that wall is that's broken down in your life, are you yielding to God in that? Are you saying, not me, God, not my power, all you. I'm giving it all to you, God. Whatever you want to do, I'm in. I desperately need you to show up. But then there's one more thing I want to point out here at the end. There's, I left off the last part of verse 11. Hopefully you caught that, right? Like anytime the pastor skips something or leaves something out, you need to like be sure you catch that. Nehemiah, he finishes his prayer, and then he just adds this little statement on the end. He's like, oh yeah, by the way, I was cupbearer to the king. Okay, that's not a big impact for us, because we don't have kings or cupbearers around here anymore. But I'll, I'll explain in a second. So here's what he's doing. Number three, embrace the place of desperation. Embrace the place of desperation. He's like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm the cupbearer, which was a really big deal. <laughs> the cupbearer was the guy who chose the best wine for the king and then tested the wine before the king drank it in case somebody had poisoned it so that the king wouldn't get taken out, the cupbearer would. All right? So the cupbearer was a big deal to the king. He had constant access to the king. It was a very prestigious position. It, was very, it, was, it had a great deal of honor that came with it as you served the king in this position. Because of how high up he was, he would have been a very trusted uh, member of the king's court. He probably would have been very wealthy because he was living in this, in this position and in the king. That's why he's in Susa, the citadel, with the king, because he's the cupbearer, right? And, um, but right here, he knows that this problem back in Jerusalem, the walls, that in order for those to get rebuilt, the king has got to sign off on it. So now he's got to approach the king with this problem that the king may not be very happy about. And during this time period, you weren't allowed to just approach the king anytime you wanted. Right? If they didn't summon you and you approached them, they could have you killed on the spot for that. So this is a major risk for Nehemiah. This is a major, um, a major um, you know, life-threatening kind of situation, dangerous situation for him. And if you read history at all, you know King Artaxerxes was not known to be like this great, humble, gentle guy. Right? Like, he was kind of moody, he kind of had a power trip, and, and he'd already had four different rebellions in his reign, in the first 20 years that he had to put down, one of them was in the province of Jerusalem. So how kind do you think he's going to be to rebuilding walls in a city that he's already had problems with that region? 
In fact, he was probably the one who stopped Ezra and the Jews from rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem when the rebellion was going on. And now Nehemiah has to go and ask him to do it again. But Nehemiah is so desperate for God to move that he embraces this position, this place of desperation, no matter what it's going to cost him. And there was a great chance it could cost him a lot. But Nehemiah was at the end of himself and knew that God was calling him to do this. He was at the end of his comfort, right? He could easily lose his cushy, coveted position, his lifestyle, his freedom, even his life, but he was willing to lay all of that down because he was desperate for God to move. He was at the end of his ignorance. He had seen too much. He knew too much. He couldn't go back to life as it was. He was at the end of his ability. Despite his position, despite all the the skills he had, he couldn't fix this. He had to have the king's help, and God had to change the king's heart if that was going to happen. Nehemiah embraced the place of desperation because he was at the end of himself. Have you ever heard the saying, God helps those who help themselves? Who's heard that? Show of hands. All right. It's pretty common, especially here in America. We like that one a lot. We almost quote it like it's the Bible. We're like, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, the Bible doesn't say that. That was actually Benjamin Franklin who didn't even believe in the Bible. So there you go. The Bible doesn't say God helps those who help themselves. The Bible tells us that God helps those who can't help themselves and desperately need him. That's the overwhelming message of the Bible, verse after verse, story after story. It starts when we get desperate for God. When I get to the end of myself, I find that God is all I have and all I need. That's the place of desperation. That's the place where God can truly make a big move in our lives. God's next big move in my life starts at the end of myself. I told you earlier, our new theme for this year is taking new ground, right? And and we are asking and we are believing and we are expecting that God is going to make some big moves in our church and in our lives this year. We want to see him take new ground for his glory in every area. Four things we're going to highlight this year that we're going to focus on. We've already prayed over them, but I want to just hit them one more time for you. Number one, and this is where it starts. This is why we're talking about it today. The first place is we need to see God take new ground in my heart. It has to start with us as individuals. God will not do anything new in this church, in this community, through us, until we start by getting desperate for him in our individual lives and hearts. God, come do a new thing in me. Get rid of that sin that I've been struggling with for years. Take me to that next level of spiritual disciplines. Take me to that next level of sanctification and holiness. God, we are desperate for you to move in us. So take new ground in our hearts. Number two, take new ground in our church. Our mission is to make disciples. We want to see God make more disciples and deeper disciples all this year. 
which means new small groups and new leaders and new ministries and whatever God wants to open up so that we're seeing him do more and more and more as he grows his church and makes disciples for his glory. New ground in my heart, new ground in our church, new ground in our community. Listen, guys, we spent the whole last year studying one book of the Bible. (laughs) We studied Acts for an entire year so that we can learn how to be bold witnesses for a big God, and that doesn't stop just because the book's over. We gotta keep pressing out and being a witness and sharing the gospel and bringing more people to Jesus. Individually and collectively, we're looking for new ministry opportunities to, to reach the lost in our community. And then number four, taking new ground in his kingdom. We wanna be even more about church planting and missions this year than we have any year past. We just announced two more churches that are launching today as a part of our church network that we support every month. We're supporting a new church plant right now we're gonna be talking to you more about in the coming weeks. We're gonna be looking at doing some short-term mission trips uh, in the coming year. We wanted to do it this past year, but COVID messed us up. We're gonna do it this year though, by God's grace. We want to see us keep pressing out to do more for his kingdom. But for any of this to happen, first, We have to get desperate for God to move. We have to get to the end of ourselves, each one of us personally and individually, us and God on our face. What does that look like for you today? What's that wall that's broken down for you? What's that area that you need to get desperate and pray and get on your face and yield to God that he will move in new ways in your heart and life? Whatever that is, let's take that to him now. Let's see him move. I'm gonna pray, but as I pray, I want you to be praying. Whatever that is for you, whatever that personal yielding is that you need, take that to God. Start right now. Don't wait till you get home. Don't wait till next week. Like, you'll forget. You'll, something else will come up. Like, right now. Right now, let's start getting desperate for God to move and take new ground in our lives. Stand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now, God. We, we recognize more than ever, Lord, that we need you. God, we are desperate for you to move. God, we are desperate to see you do new things and greater things in our lives and in our church and our community. Lord, we need you every minute and every hour and every day. We are desperate for your help. We are desperate for your power. We are desperate for you to move. God, we want to see you take new ground. And we want to take new ground with you and for you, this, your kingdom this year. God, show us. Show us how. Show us where. Lord, help us get to the end of ourselves so that you can move in big, big ways. Lord, we need you. We need you now.